This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. At the recent NATO and G7 meetings, President Trump suggested that the relationship between itself and several of its European allies could be changing. Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel responded by saying that it may be time for Germany and Europe to not count on the U.S. anymore. And that has put many questions on the mind of economists and uh, financiers around the world. Joining us to take a look at this, we asked those questions and more of our friend Mauro Guillen, professor of international management here at the Wharton School. He is also director of the Lauder Institute. And also joining us on the phone, Dr. Stephen Zabo, who's executive director of the Transatlantic Academy. Mauro, Stephen, great to have you both back with us today. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess let's start with your reactions to the commentary by both President Trump and uh, Chancellor Merkel. Uh, Mauro, I'll start with you. Well, I think, uh, you know, this is indicative of the times that we are living through in the sense that, um, you know, the outcome of certain elections, uh, especially the one in the U.S., has called into question longstanding arrangements in the world, uh, including the uh, post-World War II um, economic, financial, and now, as we see, also defense um, order. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, these are serious issues. I mean, my, my concern is that uh, we're not having a, an in-depth debate as to what are the pros and the cons of continuing with the current system uh, versus, uh, you know, uh, one tweet from one tweet to the next, uh, essentially changing uh, arrangements that have been in place for 60 or 70 years. Uh, so uh, I think uh, we're living through interesting times. There's no question about that. Uh, the other observation very quickly that I will make is that I don't see why uh, there is a connection between the uh, bilateral trade deficit between Germany and the United States on the one hand and uh, the uh, security arrangement in, in Europe. I, I just don't see exactly what the connection might right. be, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, it seems as if both issues have been raised uh, simultaneously. And, um, you know, the president uh, seems to think uh, that there's a connection between the two. Stephen? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, here you are, you're dealing with a real estate guy who's had almost no strategic experience, and he's mixing up his, his sort of economic uh, sort of transactional view of the world with broader security issues. Uh, going back to the Merkel statement, I think, I think what, the, what Professor Gion said is correct, that we're at a turning point. This is really a historical turning point. But there's also a shorter-term factor here, and that's the German election, which is coming up in September. Uh, her opponents, the Social Democrats, have been very critical of, of Trump, but the German public is very critical. He has a very low approval rating there. So in part, you know, she can't come out appearing to be, let's say, I wouldn't say her, his poodle, but his dachshund. You know, she's right. got to be able to stand up. She tried working with him. She invited his daughter over to Berlin for this meeting. Uh, and now I think she realizes that after the, after the sessions in Brussels that uh, she's going to have to take a much more independent position. Uh, last point. Unfortunately for Germany, they're more dependent on the U.S. right now than vice versa, not only in security, but also the trade issues and investments. So she's in a difficult position where she has to take a more independent line. On the other hand, she knows that she's got to work with Trump. 
We're joined on the phone by uh, Mauro Guillen of the Wharton School, Stephen Sabo of the Transatlantic Academy. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y-21. Stephen, the other interesting piece to it, and and I think you were starting to allude to it anyway, is just the fact that where Miss uh, Mer- Mrs. Merkel stands right now in in terms of her country with an election coming up and the importance of that in terms of standing up and looking strong as the leader of one of the most powerful countries in the EU right now. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, this is uh, Trump represents everything the Germans don't believe in. I mean, into sort of nationalism, uh, bilateral approaches to the to the world, uh, no real concern for human rights. So all these issues, and then to mention his his positions on trade. So as I mentioned, I think if you look at public opinion in Germany, he's actually trailing Putin in terms of sort of his approval rating and his trustworthiness. So. It's very difficult for a politician going into an election in about three months or so to take any kind of positive view or be too close to Trump. As I mentioned, I think she tried to do this. She knows she has to work with him. Right. But uh, she's also, I mean, the, if you listen to her opponents, uh, both the current foreign minister, who's a social democrat, and also Mr. Schultz, who's going to be the, the main candidate against her, they're both been even more critical of Trump and accusing her of coming to this too late and being too weak on Trump. So she's in a very difficult uh, position right now. Well, Amaro, it's interesting because... Uh where where Germany stands right now as one of the leaders uh, in, in the European Union, their voice is as strong as anybody's right now, whether that be France, uh, obviously with the relationship uh, that's that's dwindling with the UK. So truly, Miss Merkel, even though she is speaking for Germany, to a degree, she is speaking for Europe. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're mentioning that Germany is one of the most... Uh powerful countries in Europe. I think it is the country right now that has, uh, uh, you know, a unique position, I mean, because of its, uh, you know, economic prowess, uh, but also because, uh, you know, it is a uh, country that has a, uh, uh, a democracy that is working really well. The political system is working really well. Uh, they have years of experience with coalition government, something unheard of uh, in other parts of the world, meaning that, uh, uh, you know, a number of political parties come together to try to pursue policies that are good for, for the people. And but let's let's not forget that uh, all of this is taking place in a context in which uh, you know the trade issue, right? So, the U.S. has a trade deficit pretty much with every country in the world, right? Not just with Germany, right? And the U.S. has the largest deficit with China, which kind of makes sense because uh, China is a very large uh, economy. Uh, but the deficit that the U.S. has with Germany is more or less of about the same size as the one that it runs with uh, Japan and Mexico, right? Uh, is it true that the euro is uh, slightly undervalued and that is helping uh, German exports? Uh, of course. But it's also equally true that German companies have been making a huge effort to make investments in the U.S. so as to reduce their exports, that is to say to uh, make things in the U.S. for the U.S. market and also, by the way, for exports. So there's nearly a million American workers right now employed by German firms that decided to, um, you know, shut down facilities somewhere in Europe, right, and instead uh, expand and uh, set up factories and produce things in the United States with American workers. Right. So I think um, this whole thing of demonizing Germany and German firms is – um, my own point of view is that it's against the national interests of the United States on a number of dimensions, but it is certainly against the interests of the American worker. 
um, because, um, you know, if the climate between the United States and Germany deteriorates, well, there's going to be fewer German firms that would want to invest in the United States. Right. And, and uh, that's bad for a number of reasons, not only because, uh, you know, that's good money that is, uh, you know, German investment is good money that is creating jobs, but also because German firms, let's face it, uh, are among the very best in the world at what they do. And so when they set up operations in the United States, they're training American workers, they're transferring technology and knowledge, they're making the American economy more competitive. Uh, this is the part of the, from this debate that is missing, right? Um, so to alienate Germany at this point is not only you know, uh, bad, I think, politically and geopolitically, but it also makes no economic sense whatsoever. For the United States, I think it's in the best interest of the United States economically and certainly of U.S. uh, workers that uh, Germany continues to be a productive economy and that German firms continue to invest in the United States. I think this is really important to remind our listeners that, uh, you know, one side of the coin is trade, but the other one is investment. Right. I would like to jump that. I would agree with that. Interrelated. Right. Yeah, I'll right. just say that you're absolutely right. I mean, the, I was looking at the numbers. The Germans invest about $255 billion in the U.S., uh, and especially in states that Trump won. I mean, they, they, you have a lot of German jobs created in Tennessee, in South Carolina, in Alabama. These are states that obviously are crucial to Trump, so he's shooting himself a bit in the foot here as well. So, and Not to mention that we, the U.S. has about $108 billion invested in Germany. So it's. I agree. It's. It's really... Uh, I think, uh, as, as Professor Guillaume pointed out, why go after Germany when you've got like China and other countries that are a bigger issue? And right. you're, you're basically – and uh, the last point, I think the point that he made, too, about the training. I mean, the apprenticeship programs, vocational training, these are sort of things that the Germans are transferring to the U.S. So it's uh, – it, it's a, you know, well, I think it's a strategic and economic disaster. And, and Morrow, it, it comes at a time where, where President Trump has really stood on one of his platforms of having investment, of building up the U.S. right now. He talked to, He's talked quite a bit about infrastructure. So seemingly, I mean, he is playing a little bit of cat and mouse, it feels like here. But he's he's really has the opportunity where he's going to lose here something that could be very valuable. Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the other thing uh, that I, I think, you know, the three of us are in agreement, right, as <laughs> to what's going on. But the other, the other aspect of all of these that I think is uh, crucially important to keep in mind is that, um, so one thing is the trade deficit, right? Right. And uh, another is the balance of payments. And the balance of payments, essentially, what you need to add to the trade deficit is the, uh, roughly speaking, is the capital account, right? So it's inflows or outflows of capital. And the interesting thing is that, um, well, the U.S. is in a, in a good position, as we all know, to attract foreign capital so that we can cover our deficit because, you know, it's a still a good place in which to invest. It's a safe haven. And uh, the dollar happens to be a reserve currency, right? So we have no problem attracting capital thus far, okay, right. to cover the deficit. Um, and, uh, you know, at the other side of the Atlantic, Germany is the most important economy in another um, block, uh, which is the euro block, um, which is the second largest reserve currency in the world. Yeah. And it's also a currency that has, in principle, no problem. I mean, a currency area that has, in principle, no problem attracting investing, right? Right. Um, so uh, now the eurozone, of course, doesn't have a trade deficit, basically because of Germany, but also other countries have, uh, you know, in recent years changed from being deficit countries to being surplus countries. But what I'm trying to say is that 
this focus on the trade deficit per se, uh, without also thinking about capital flows, is a major problem, right? It's a major yeah. problem because the trade deficit is only part of the overall picture. Right. right? You also need to consider to take into account uh, the capital uh, flows. And the capital flows, uh, you know, it's uh, companies investing, right? We already alluded to that. But it's also individuals, families, you know, moving their money around, right? Um, we have no problem here. And let's, uh, you know, just one other point here. The U.S. carries a lot of public debt, right? We have a lot of sure. outstanding uh, treasury bonds. And Germany happens to be one of the top three or four countries in the world in terms of holdings of those bonds, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we live in an interconnected world. Um, should the U.S. deficit be less, uh, the trade deficit? Well, sure, that, that would help. That would be good. But I don't think uh, it is an emergency situation that we're facing. And it certainly doesn't uh, help to uh, push some of our most important allies to a corner, right? You know, uh, especially if they have um, positive contributions to make to, to our economy. It, it almost feels a little bit, Mauro, and, and Stephen, I'll get your comments on this as well, that the, the want by President Trump on this and, and on a few other things is really looking at the short term and not looking at, at, you know, 10 to 15 years down the road, which is which is disappointing, to say the least. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. I think that that's right. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think he has this incredibly uh, economically transactional focus to his uh, his worldview. This is a man who's had no experience with defense policy, for example. Right. Uh, and he's, as you mentioned earlier, he's linking together apples and oranges here with defense. I agree that on defense spending, the Germans have to do more, and they've agreed that they have to do more, and they will be stepping that up. But I think there is it's a very short-sighted sort of one-dimensional view of a multi, of a major relationship that's been going on it's been the key of our relationship for Europe for the last 70 years and as pointed out with the Brits leaving the UK uh the, this becomes even more central and here we are blowing it up Moral? Yeah, I mean it's a, uh yeah I I'm not sure I would characterize it as a sort of termist in terms of uh the approach. Okay by the president. That is true, but I think uh, more importantly, it's a partial view, right, of what's going on. It doesn't consider all of the different uh, repercussions, right? Uh, so it's like, uh, let me pick on this issue today because I feel like it, right? Right. So a few months yeah. ago, it was Mexico. Now it seems as if his attention has turned to Germany, right? And uh, quite frankly, I don't think in either case you're advancing the interests of U.S. workers. Right. Yep. Uh, and needless to say, as Steve mentioned earlier, um, some states within the U.S. Um, would suffer greatly if um, relationships with uh, Germany and Mexico were to take a turn for the worse. Uh, because all of the border states, they depend on trade with Mexico, right? Right. A lot of jobs at stake there. Uh, so uh, I think, um, you know, this is not a matter of, uh, oh, we have to balance the books, because unless we balance the books, uh, we're going to be in really bad shape. This is a matter of, let's say, putting the American worker first, right? Right. And then thinking, what is the best policy, right? I'd like to add one very quick thing about uh, defense, right, and about um, uh, the uh, the global you know balance of power. Um, so here the issue is, you know, who's the enemy, right? And I don't think there's an agreement here right now between the Trump administration and uh, its allies as to who is the enemy, right? And right. I'm specifically talking about Russia. 
So the Europeans, uh, both Eastern Europeans and Western Europeans, um, so that includes the Germans, of course, uh, feel threatened by, by Russia, uh, but apparently not, not this, this administration. And yeah. there is one outcome that Putin has accomplished so far is to divide NATO, right? NATO is weaker right now uh, as a result of all of these uh, actions and, and counteractions. And a couple of more observations here. So, yes, the European countries could spend more on defense. And actually, I personally believe that that would be good also for stimulating the economy. Right. I think in general it would be better if the Germans didn't save as much money. Remember, they have a balanced budget. They have a, a unique position. They can borrow money at negative interest rates. Right? Yep, yep. Um, and uh, it would be better if they spend more on defense, not only you know, because they would become a little bit more uh, self-dependent, uh, but uh, self-standing, but also because uh, it, I think it would stimulate growth uh, in Europe, right? And and that would be good because Europe is still trying to come out of uh, a situation with very high unemployment rates. But from the point of view of the United States, um, you know, the other thing that I think we as Americans need to realize is that you cannot – there's two things that are incompatible, right, in my view. One is to say we want to be the world's superpower, right, mm-hmm. and exert influence. Uh, but at the same time, we want somebody else to pay for this, right? So I think it goes with the status of being the world superpower. It goes that you have to allocate more money to defense, right? Because then you're in a position in which you can say, this is what we're going to do. And by the way, I'm paying for it, right? Right. And that has been the way in which the United States as a country has handled uh, its position as a superpower since World War II. Okay, let just jump in on yes, one thing, that point possible. that Mario made about Russia. Uh, yeah. There is real burden sharing here. If you look at the economic sanctions that have been led by Germany, the Europeans yeah. are, sp- are paying a much higher price, I don't know, eight or ten times I agree. The, I agree. the price that we are. So they, so they are really taking the lead there, and, and I think that that's a, you know, a crucial point. And I think your point is also right, Mario. I mean, this strange attitude that the, the president, at least, seems to have about Putin is helping to undermine uh, the, the unity in Europe, and, right. and, and I agree, and that's undermining the U.S. position. We are joined uh, on the phone by Mauro Guillen of the Wharton School, Stephen Zabo of the Transatlantic Academy. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We head to the phones. Argyle, Texas. Charles is on the line. Charles, go ahead. Yes, well, I think, you know, people constantly underestimate Trump's business acumen. And this is a good case right here. If more of those expensive German car companies were manufacturing here in America, that would benefit local uh, workers. And the thing is, you don't know what Trump's thinking, but he is a businessman. And he is a winner. And when people start talking about economies and things they don't really understand, because unless you've been a businessman and worked at the level he's worked at, you just don't understand what his reasons is, are for doing things. And since that's the case, I would give him a chance. As far as Putin is concerned, he constantly doesn't want people to know really what he thinks so he can negotiate. He's a negotiator. Right. To read his okay. book, he's always win-win. Even and at a high level, even when he loses, he wins high. That's okay. what we need, and it will help Germany, and it will tie us in tighter with him. But I don't think he can say that at this point. He has to negotiate with him. Okay. As far as paying their fair share, they should pay their fair share. They never have. They should. Charles, thanks very much for the call. Gentlemen, I'll let you respond to that. Morrow, yeah. you can start. No, I, I, uh, I respect uh, that point of view. I mean, I think uh, there is room for debate here, right? Right. 
Um, I think, uh, you know, maybe I'm repeating myself. I think uh, the issue is uh, the Germans, uh, German companies, that is, are making, uh, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of products in the United States. Uh, they employ nearly a million American workers. So to introduce an element of uncertainty right now would only achieve one result, which is that American, I'm sorry, German firms will think twice about expanding their operations in the United States, which would be good for American workers. So I have, uh, I put ahead of everything else, American workers and uh, and uh, and uh, the American people. I don't think um, picking a fight with Germany is uh, something that is conducive to, um, you know, a better standard of living in the future with uh, for, for American workers, right? I, I just I just don't think uh, there's right. any evidence of that. But but again, on the on the defense side, right? And, they, uh, and these are two separate issues. On the defense side, um, I, as a U.S. citizen, I don't think our our country can claim to be the world's leading superpower, and at the same time say that everybody else has to pay uh, for uh, for all of that. Yeah, one thing is to say that uh, yes, everybody has to pay a reasonable amount. But if, as a country, we want to continue exercising, um, you know, uh, influence over the world, we are the ones who, uh, you know, will need to continue uh, spending um, uh, a very large amount of money on defense. Otherwise, right. we would be kind of indicated to the rest of the world, well, we're not really serious about, um, you know, being a superpower or having influence over different parts of the world. That's my personal opinion, right? That right. one thing comes with the other. But again, there's room for debate. I, sure. I respect, uh, you know, other points of view, and I respect uh, people who disagree with, uh, with my points of view. I think there is room for debate, right? Um, as for the, uh, the last point, just very quickly, negotiating skills. Uh, well, the problem here is that... Um, there's one way in which uh, negotiations, either among number of countries or between, uh, you know, two countries, have been taking place for a very long time in the world. And what you cannot do is uh, just go to international meetings and break the rules of the game, because right. then essentially you're going to get a reaction that is very negative. And I do not believe that is in the best interest of the, of the United States. Uh, so. Uh, whatever the style of negotiation is, has to be one that falls within the parameters uh, that exist in the world. And you cannot just break with those rules like that. Yep. Stephen? I mean, I think the, the one image that, re that strikes to me is when he was in Brussels and he pushed the Montenegrin prime minister out of the way to get in front. And the reaction back in Europe was that this guy is just a you know, bully and a bore. And it's one thing to take a tough negotiating position. It's another thing to sort of make it harder for your negotiating partner to negotiate. And that's what he's doing now. He's making it hard for Merkel to come back and, and have an open negotiation because if she can give any concessions at all, then she'll be attacked as, being, as giving in to this guy. And so I think well, that's the other issue is that kind of style opens up uncertainty in the minds of Putin. Uh, if he uh, is, 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 it, is Putin viewing this as simply a negotiating tactic, or is he seeing this as a real change in American uh, commitment to Europe, and therefore opening up the possibilities for miscalculation? So I think it's very dangerous. Well, the other interesting piece, and it was a story that came out uh, the other day, was was involving Wilbur Ross and, and his commentary about having open, uh, significant trade relations with uh, with other countries, and and he was focusing, I think, specifically on Europe. So. Again, we're we're talking about 
w- the message from one side, Stephen, being one thing, yet the message on a different angle of that same side being slightly different. So it makes you wonder how much of what President Trump is saying truly is negotiation and how much of it he truly is believing as hardline, I need to have X, Y, and Z in order to move forward. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, from the European point of view, and it's also true in the American point of view, too, you don't know who to listen to anymore. True, in terms yeah. Of who's speaking for U.S. policy? I think the Europeans have taken the view, let's talk to the reasonable people, you know, the defense yeah. secretary, secretary of commerce, and so on, and hope that uh, people like the trade rep, rep and, and, and Steve Bannon are not the real voice of, of Trump. I think what's concerning was when he went to Brussels, the tone was very clearly the Bannon approach, and it looked like that group was getting the upper hand. But you're right. I, I think the Europeans, what they'll do is they'll listen to the message they like to hear and try to work and respond to that and try to work with those people in the administration who they think might be more open to it. Do you think, for both of you, Stephen first, do you think that that the NATO agreement, which was obviously talked about quite a bit uh, by President Trump and has been in the news uh, over the last uh, week or so, do you think that needs to be be looked at in terms of who contributes what uh, defense-wise to the security in Europe? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we both agree on that, that I think the Europeans have got to, for a lot of reasons, they've got to step up their defense spending. A main reason now is the U.S. is less reliable, and they need to have some kind of backup for their own security. The problem, of course, is it's going to take a long time. You can't turn around, I would say, decades of neglect in two or three years. And and also, what do we mean by defense spending? It's not simply tanks, so that's important, tanks and aircraft. It's also cyber security, for example, which is really important, Uh, border security which is more of an EU f- function than a NATO function. So I, I do think, yes, I think they have to spend more. I think the Germans are beginning to have underspent. They're the worst offender, I think, of the big countries. And I think they're beginning to slowly turn that around. Morrow? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think there's uh, very little for me, for me to add. I think it makes sense for Europe to move in that direction. And I think it makes sense uh, for, you know, any American administration to put... Uh, you know, U.S. national interests uh, ahead of everything else. Uh, but knowing that, uh, you know, putting your own interests ahead of everyone else doesn't mean that you're always looking for a conflict and you're always looking for, uh, you know, ways to, um, you know, um, uh, win over, you know, uh, everybody else in the world. Sometimes, uh, you know, um, everybody winning makes out for a uh, much better outcome. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Mara. Thank you, Stephen. All the best to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Mara Guillen from the Wharton School, Stephen Sabo from the Transatlantic Academy. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.